yes, there are differences. And when we can live in that space, when we can be in that space of both and, and hear and listen and sink in and open our hearts, that's when I think we're going to be able to heal the divisions because we'll move forward in a different way together. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. Every week, I'm talking to thought leaders around the world who are knee deep in their work, tackling some of the world's most vexing problems, and they still think the future's bright. Well, we need to know what they know. We need to know how they come up against obstacles and see them as opportunities. And we need to know why they think the world is so bright. This is a solutions-based podcast. They're going to share some problems with us, always our guests will, but we're going to spend a lot more time on these aha moments because everyone I interview on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast has found a way to create win-wins solutions that include us all. So I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles, now the Goodness Exchange. It's a a fabulous place to go if you're just worried about the world, because there we have shown a light on thousands of insights and innovations that demonstrate it is still an amazing world. And along the way, I've been talking to all these thought leaders we're writing about and having these private conversations and not sharing them. Well, we fixed that in October of 2020, and we've started recording these conversations, and that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to talk to an amazing woman, Anne-Marie Schrouder, who is the author of an amazing book about, well, it's called Being Brown in a black and white world. So you can imagine the kind of insights that Anne-Marie is going to share with us about leadership and belonging and race and racism as we all fashion a life in this new era that I believe is opening. And Anne-Marie is certainly a thought leader in it. So welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, I I just have to share with people, Anne-Marie is, I've spent some time with her and I can tell you, she must be an exceptional facilitator. There's no doubt about it. She's the kind of consultant that you could lean on to make leaps in your cultures. And she's an international speaker. And I love the way she likes to talk about her work. She says that she likes to create healthy communities where everyone is seen, everyone is heard, and everyone feels valued. And I believe that that kind of world is possible for us all. So, Anne-Marie, take us on a journey today. Wow. Where should I start? Where would you like me to begin? Well, start with your story, because I think, you know, the Goodness Exchange is all about shining a lot of light on people who are absolutely working in their niche, in what they are uniquely built to contribute to this world in a good way. And it really seemed to me after our first conversation that you have found your purpose and you are on it. And every day you probably spring out of bed, welcoming a world full of possibility. So tell us your story. How'd you get there? Certainly do. Well, it's been a long journey. I started my career as an elementary school teacher way back in the 90s. I don't know if I told you that when we spoke last. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person of color. I'm female identified. I'm part of the LGBTQ communities. So I certainly have an experience of lack of inclusion or not feeling included, not feeling a sense of belonging. As a teacher, I learned about 
you know, the professional lens on inclusion and why it was important. And it just, it, it was a no brainer for me. Like, of course, kids need to see themselves reflected in the pictures and the posters and the examples and the books and, and what we're doing in the classroom in order to feel like they matter and, and they're important and what they have to say is interesting and, and that they have something to contribute, right? So when I started teaching in the late nineties, we were just starting to talk more and more about that, right? How it leads to more success and more engagement. And when I left teaching, cause I didn't last very long, <laughs> I wasn't the kind of teacher I wanted to be. I think if I taught high school, I may have lasted a little bit longer. When I left teaching, I thought, what are we doing for adults? Cause when you graduate from high school, you know, who's talking about this for adults? So a few years later, I started my company and I've always worked with organizations to, to learn about, you know, we all see the world through our own lens. Mm-hmm. I'm well-versed in what it's like to be a female of a certain age with brown skin who now has a child, right? Like, I get it. And, and you will get the world through your eyes and through your perspectives, et cetera, because of your many identities. And so will everybody else. And the beautiful thing about this work, the thing that I love so much about doing diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity work is that... The aha moments that I love are when people see, understand when it, when the, when the penny drops that, oh, you know, we can be in the same situation, having a completely different experience, right? Completely. And unless I ask you, which we often don't do, I might think you're having the same experience as me. And if I'm having a great experience, I might think everything's great for everybody else in the office or the community or even in my family, right? So the the thing I love about this work is for me, it's all about building community, building connection, building awareness so we can create a greater sense of belonging and stronger communities. This seems so obvious when I hear it come out of your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, you know, when you think about the the nearest six-year-old in your life or the nearest 14-year-old, and you think about the world they see, maybe not so many good role models, and then you think about what it could be. And this is at the essence, at the heart of, I think, what you're contributing to is you're helping people imagine what it could be. Yeah. Imagine what it could be if we if we really noticed each other, if we really got to know each other. And, you know, you mentioned little ones, little ones. Often in in sessions or workshops, we talk about, I talk a lot about race and racism. We talk a lot about not seeing color, right? And how some of us have been taught not to see color, that, you know, it doesn't matter. And it does. Yeah. It's part of who somebody is. It has to matter. It's part of our experience. It's part of how we, it informs how we're, how we move through the world, how people see us, how we're treated. And little ones are so good at noticing the obvious that us as adults have been trained not to see. Yeah. So they'll, you know, they'll notice the person in the wheelchair or the person who has a different color skin or the person who is, is walking with somebody of the same gender. Right. Like they, and then we're like, shh, 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 don't say that out loud because we're like, we're freaked out because we don't want them to. What is that? You know what that, in my opinion, that is because we have learned to attach value to different people. Right. And that some people we have learned in many ways that some people have more value and some people have less. And so when our child opens their mouth to notice something obvious about who a person is in the world, we want to shut it down if it's part of if it's a group that we've been taught. Right. Because we don't 
we need to notice. Wow. This is a really, really key point. I got goosebumps on my arms. Oh, you're going to teach me so much. I hope everybody else enjoys this. Meanwhile, I need to just own it. If people see me looking down, I'm taking rigorous notes. So I've got my pen in hand. Okay. So let's sit with that for just a second, because that's huge. (laughs) So we are taught to say, oh, I don't see, I don't see race. Right. And, and I, I don't, first of all, one of my big talking points when I talk to people is that we are our wiring. That's it. Mother Teresa had the same wiring as you and I. She just didn't say hateful things very often because she had so much rigorous intention in practicing pausing. Absolutely. The pausing is so important. Yeah. Uh, Gandhi had the same. He didn't have any, he had more patience than, uh, than all of us, of course, but paused and he he was still stuck with the same wiring wiring we are and we are wired to rest recognize difference because forty thousand years ago we had to decide whether that person on the hill was going to be was going to make us their next meal you know i mean i don't know so talk to me more about this this making it okay to notice and then what we do next Okay. Well, making it okay to notice in my work and in general means that every part of who I am is important. My skin color is important. My gender is important. My height, all that stuff. That's part of who I am in the world. And if you're going to tell me you don't see that because of some reason that you think you shouldn't, because it's not a good thing, then who are you seeing? I'm going to read, I'm going to read you a poem. Okay. From my book. So my book is part poetry and part interesting things for leaders and other people that are interested to to read. And one of the things that I talk about in this book is my experience of being biracial. Yeah. My quotation marks biracial, because we know race is is not real. It's a social construct. And we can talk about that. But my mom is white and my dad is black. And my mom has very often said to me in my life, I don't see your color, right? Here's the little poem that I wrote about that. I don't see your color. You said, I love you as if these can't coexist, being and loving. And I wonder, how can you love me if you don't see my brown skin? So what I wanna say about that, Linda, is that when we say things like, I don't see color, or I don't notice that you're fill in the blank, I believe what we're trying to say and what my mom is trying to say is, I love you and I'm not devaluing you because of that identity like like some people in the world do. I, I believe that's what people mean, yeah? And if you remember Martin Luther King's quote from his I Have a Dream speech about one day we will be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. He didn't say don't notice it. Okay, I think we've taken a little jump there and and like, oh, we're not supposed. No, no, no. He didn't say don't notice. He said don't use it as a form of, of judgment. So when you say to me that you don't see my skin color. To me, it it says you're not seeing who I am. And with that, you don't have the opportunity to see the impact of that in a world that sees us differently and wants people to believe that we are, that we have different value. Those are conversations that we need to have. Absolutely. I just love the direction of this conversation. I'm going to come back to something you said in a minute, and I'm just going to add one little mom insight to, to your way of thinking. So, because I know what your mom was trying to say, let me share this with you. So. I have had a one pound baby, Mm. one pound, what they, what a baby looks like when it comes out weighing one pound, it's about this long. And it looks like a little Barbie doll with a chicken egg size head covered with fur, covered Mm -hmm. with, with fur. And the skin looks like cellophane over meat in the grocery store. (laughs) 
<laughs> now you see me smiling really big. Cause guess what? That baby lived and she became an engineer and she is one in a million. They tell me she's still the smallest baby ever born at the medical center. She was born at that didn't grow up to have disabilities. So essentially I've won the lottery, but back to your mom, here's what I remember happening. So what happens in a mom's brain, I think is unique to what we all, uh, what we're talking about here, but I have to share it because if your mom ever said anything really like that, it could fit a million different circumstances. I have to share it. So when people came, they would recoil when they saw Louisa and it was hard for them to not like their faces. They would it would cause people to, it would take their breath away because we wheeled the little thing over to the window and they were outside and they'd look at it. And, and I was so proud of her. I couldn't see that she looked like a little, little alien thing. After about two days, my brain shifted over and I thought she was the coolest looking thing in the whole world. I think it's a mom brain thing, but my dad was a physician for 40 years. And when he came and he looked down through that window, he'd seen it all. Let me tell you. He's an ER doc. He said, well, Linda, just don't get your hopes up. Mm. So he didn't see it, but my mom's response was entirely different. She was like head to the side and I could tell she was making this transition. Mm -hmm. This moment of maybe it's a biological thing. I don't know, but I think I know what your mom was saying. And I didn't see that Louisa was looked absolutely horrifying, but it literally would make, take people's breath away. They go. <laughs> and I remember go, looking at myself going, "Whoa, I can't see what other people see anymore. So anyway, I just had to take a little aside on that. I want you to talk to us about this great statement. We just breezed over it. You said it a moment ago yeah. that race isn't real. Yeah. But the impact of racism is talk to us all about that. Absolutely. So, so this has been my journey. And you asked me earlier, like, what's my journey and how do I know I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing in the world? Uh -huh. Well, because I'm biracial, quotation marks, I feel like I have it. Well, we all bring our unique perspective to whatever we do. But the unique perspective that I bring to this work is having grown up in a house with very different cultures languages and in, in my experience, skin colors. Mm -hmm. And I'm the product of those two skin colors. Yeah. So I'm darker than my mom. I'm lighter than my dad. And well, we'll get to that. We'll get to the both end later. But what I've struggled with my whole life is that polarization. Are you, I wasn't black enough for the black kids in school, not just because of the color of my skin. I want to be clear about that, but also because of my cultural intel. I am closer to my mother's side of the family, who's European, than my dad's side of the family, who's Caribbean. And because my mom was home with me and, and she was a stay-at-home mom and my dad worked. And so we had summer, you know, every few summers we went back to, to Austria, where my mom's from, to be with family for the whole summer. Like, what a great way to immerse yourself and get to know your extended family. I didn't have that same luxury with my dad's side of the family because he worked and he had a couple weeks vacation and, right? So... Growing up in the in-between place and trying to find, right, not black enough for the black kids and not white because my skin is brown. I've always been searching for a place to belong. And so I love that the, the DNI world, the diversity and inclusion world has now included the word, uh, included the word belonging. But huh, I've always known that race is a social construct. Well, maybe not always, not since I was a little kid, but, you know, we learned about it in university. I, I did a master's in, soci uh, in the sociology and equity studies department but it didn't land for me until very recently, like in my body land. Like, what does this mean for me as a human being land? I could talk about it. I got the concept, 
So, and because of the folks that I was talking to about it, like, I don't, we're not learning that. We're not learning that race is a social contract. And what does that mean? It means somebody literally made it up. Okay. There are not different races of people. <laughs> like Somebody made it up several hundred years ago based on skull size and, and where the skulls were found. And they, they created names based on like geographic names based on where the skulls were found. The Caucasoid mountains was one Caucasian. Ethiopioid was another because that skull was found in, in the region of Africa known as Ethiopia. And then they made all sorts of theories about people based on these skulls, how big they were, the size of that, like the shape. And then it just, I mean, it's not, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't have a super in-depth knowledge to give you a history lesson, but that was the origin of it. Yeah. So we have some guy, Blumenbach was his name, with the skulls who came up with this theory and hundreds of years later, we still think that human beings have, that we are different races of human beings. Now human beings, period. Okay. <laughs> Just one group in that one group, we have different skin colors because of migration over thousands of years and the amount of melanin our skin needed to, to protect ourselves from the sun or not, depending on how warm or cold the climate was, definitely have different skin colors, but not we're not different races. So race is a social construct, not real, made up, but we've been taught that it's real. And the impact of that teaching has been to separate people by skin color, yeah? And so racism is real. Racism is very real. And the impact of racism is real. And we're all impacted by racism, Linda. Just some of us are impacted positively and some of us are impacted negatively, but it's a division. It's a tool to divide us, which is, is so painful when you think about it for everybody. Yeah. It's such a detractor for everyone. Like in the big scope of things, it's a net negative, no matter where you do the math. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's negative in different ways for absolute sure. Mm -hmm. But we all lose. This is very, very, you know, I, I just have to say, and I think this is where you're driving at. Correct me if I'm wrong. I had a, a really nice friend in South Africa and her dad was of Indian descent and her mom of British Rose. And she looked like her mom and her sister looked like her dad. And she, they had lived completely separate lives, even though they were born only 13 months apart, because when she was born, she got stamped white. And when the, her sister was born, a person of color. I don't know how they did that, but I remember her telling me exactly how her life unfolded so different than how her sister's life unfolded. Isn't that amazing? And it's, it's genes. Yeah, it's genes. So now I want to read you another poem, if I may, called just DNA. Here it is. No race should make me feel more free. And in some ways it does reminds me of our common humanity connects me with everyone in a DNA dance. And in other ways, I feel more lost, have less of a tether to my families than I did before. I am a product of chance, random sequencing due to ancestral adaptation. True, I wouldn't be the color I am without my parents, but they didn't give it to me. It didn't come wrapped in two packages, merged. My skin color was created as part of who I am. It's mine. And poems have helped me in my life to understand what I'm going through and process that. And that that's my experience of, oh, I'm not either or half of less than more than I'm just me. And it is truly the science of this is random chance yeah. on how the DNA worked at worked out. I could have been lighter. I could have been darker. Right. But but the book being brown in a black and white world, a little bit of a play on words because I'm talking about race. But we often want people to choose one side or the other. Why can't we just be in the boat and 
There's so much power in the both end. Okay, we're going to talk about both end, but I want to comment on your poem. Okay. Poetry as a whole. I know that I, I have to write for Ever Widening, for Ever Widening Circles and the Goodness Exchange. And just the, just the process of trying, to, of trying to come down to conservation of words, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, that process, that, that mind space makes you really think about the words you say and what all that's attached to them. Yeah, I, I see so much conservation of energy in that poem. And that's why I use them in the book, because for me now, my poems just, they show up, they arrive. That might sound a little hokey, but really not so much anymore. But there was a period of my life. I had a dog. I was out in nature every day, walking for a couple of hours in the morning. And if I didn't take a piece of paper and a pencil, they'd be gone. They would, they would come. I'd be thinking about something. They would appear. I would furiously write. And then I couldn't, if I didn't have it written down, there was no way I would have remembered it when I got home. So these are all poems that I've, that I've written on my journey to greater self-acceptance, to self-awareness, to understanding. And, uh, and I, I wanted to put them in the book because it's the quickest way to my heart. And I'm hoping the quickest way to the hearts of the people who read it. That's really because you've, you've used such rigorous intention in cutting every single word until if you cut one more, it would bleed. <laughs> I think Mark Twain said that. I mean, that that's to me, when I listen to your words in both these two poems, um, every word matters. Yes. Mm, yeah. Love it. Okay. And I, I like to point out practical tips as we go through these podcast interviews. I think we've stumbled upon a lot of them already. I hope people are taking, taking notes or we're going to make really great show notes for this episode. So you'll be able to catch and dive back into parts that really interest you in our conversation. But I'm with you. I walk with a, with a sticky note pad everywhere I go. I literally never am without arm's reach for that reason that you just said. I'll, I'll scribble down a little insight, uh, more than a to-do list, way more than a to-do list, an insight that will be gone if I don't. I feel like it's like a ticker tape of insight that I am getting access to and I just snag it. It doesn't feel like it comes from me. It feels like it's coming from somewhere else. Yeah, I agree. So that's a good tip for people whose mind tends to tends to want to work for them instead of against them. <laughs> yeah. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this both uh, them and us paradigm and the both and spaces, because this is a, such an empowering concept once we get into it. Okay, so we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles and the podcast you're listening to now the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I have a question and an answer for you. Have you been hoping the world is actually a lot better than what you see on the news and social media? Well, it is. In fact, it's radically better. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. But on December 1st, 2021, all that changes with the launch of the Goodness Exchange a digital landscape where you will see that the world is full of goodness and progress, and we will introduce you to the people making it that way. Bottom line, someone is solving every vexing problem in the world, large and small. And the Goodness Exchange is where people are coming together to amplify a future that includes all that. No one with good intention and good ideas need feel alone again. Here's what you'll find at the Goodness Exchange. There will be articles about the most amazing things going on in the world that are going uncelebrated. 
There'll be interviews and events that will send your mind and heart soaring again. And a social media platform dedicated to a culture of kindness, insight, and celebration. A way of um, amplifying a brighter future for us all. And that social media platform is a place where organizations doing good in the world will not have to hold their nose anymore. It can be a trustworthy, respectable place for organizations to host their groups and gatherings and connect with each other. A network of positive networks, if you will. The Goodness Exchange will be a place to find mini courses and masterclasses for personal and professional development, and eventually there'll be a jobs board, and we have a children's website already all teed up. The thread running through it all is that goodness um, and progress is everywhere, and we will help people cultivate what they are uniquely built to contribute to this future for us all. Now, imagine a website with no ads, no games, and no agenda, just a simple and powerful vision of combining our collective strengths to create a future we can all celebrate. The Goodness Exchange will open a new era for us all as individuals, because you're going to find stuff that make your life better instantaneously, and as a collective, because we all want a better future for our children. Who knows what's possible if there was a place on the internet that brought out our best impulses and our collective genius. Join us after December 1st at the Goodness Exchange and start living with less fear, more joy as an individual and as a collective future for humanity. Thanks. Now we're back to the interview. Okay, so we're back, Anne-Marie. I just love the direction our conversation is talking is going. So let's get into this both and spaces, this them-us paradigm. Tell us what, what we can grow from. So what, I, what I've noticed, um, not just in the work that I do and if we look around the world, right, but also in my, in my body, in my being. Growing up as biracial, I was always feeling like I had to choose, black or white you know, this side or that side. And we can see that with all sorts of identities, gender, sexual orientation, like we want to, we want to polarize, right? Us. And so what happens when we're in either, or what can happen is that we, we create an us and them, right? This side and that side, our, you know, our opinion, your opinion. And what do we do when that happens? We start to create barriers in between us because I'm right and you're not, right? I matter and you don't. Whatever the case may be, however you want to spin it, that the polarization of either or us and them, you you or me rather than we or both and is so damaging. And in, and in my opinion, one of the reasons is because we don't see each other. We don't see that common humanity. We don't see the we, we don't see how we are. You know, we hear more and more now how we're all one, we're all connected. We don't see that. That's broken. And so my aha moment in my healing in terms of, you know, my racial identity, quote unquote, was realizing that I'm not, not black enough, which I've always felt that I was, or too white, which I always felt that I was, but I'm both, right. I'm a combination and I'm both. And there's the end, right. Both. And I'm me, (laughs) you know, so that's my own experience in my body as a, as a person. But when we apply that to groups and the world, we all have our own work to do. We all have our own work to do around raising awareness, understanding, healing our own stuff. But how amazing is it 
when we can come together in a both and space. And if, you know, this, I have, this is my little symbol here, like the little cup in my hands, right? One hand, two hands together. If we can all come together in this both and space. And in that space, there's room for the sides, quote unquote, right? Talking about race, there's room for white, there's room for black, whatever the sides are, whatever the us and them is, there's room. And in that space, for me, it's the opportunity for us to listen, for us to learn, for us to share, right? To let it sink in so that we can start to chip away at the walls that we've created with between us to make us feel like we're so, so different from each other. Yes, there are differences. And <laughs> there's the band again, right? When we can live in that space, when we can be in that space of both and, and hear and listen and sink in and open our hearts, that's when I think we're going to be able to heal the divisions because we'll move forward in a different way together. That's my dream. I, I think that is just foundational. And I think it goes back to what you started out talking about, right? That if we can be in a room and actually see that someone's older or shorter or wiser or, or whatever it is. And then the, I think that curiosity comes into this so beautifully with what you just said, because that place of both and makes it really okay to say, now, Anne-Marie, you can't possibly be ex experiencing this the same way I am. Tell me what you think. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and if we're all ready for some, some, some real reversals of, I always like to use the phrase, improve my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I, I love to be wrong because every time I love, I, I am pointed out that I've been wrong. It means I leaped a little bit. I elevated a little bit. My, my, the scope of what I can see the whole world of possibility for. So talk to me about how we get there. Cause I definitely, I have another question. I'm definitely desperate to ask you, but before we leave this topic, tell me how you think we kind of get there. Like in our own, I, I know we can't change others. So if we can't really change others, what can we do to demonstrate this way of being in the world so that it looks attractive to, to others? Ah, the both end place. Well, I think there's a few skills and tricks that we can do. And I have three questions that I like to share with people that I have adapted, lovingly adapted from Byron Katie's four questions. Okay. So, and it works with situations. It works with people. The first question is, is it true? So whatever I'm thinking about you or about the situation that I'm in, is it true? And I like to use the analogy of, you know, you come home after a long day at work when we were going to work outside of the house and your significant other has not cleaned up the kitchen. That's one of my pet peeves. Okay. So, <laughs> right. And so where, where does our mind go? You talked, you had a phrase earlier and I can't remember what it was, but our mind is always nattering on and on and on and on about stuff to us. Right. And that's where assumptions live and bias. Right. And we go down a rabbit hole. So, you know, my, one of my first reactions is oh, seriously, you've been home all day. I've been out. You haven't cleaned blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and I'm down the rabbit hole. Right. So the first question is, and, and so then I'm making a judgment. You're inconsiderate, you're lazy, you don't care about me, blah, 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 all sorts of things, right? So, and we do the same thing with people. We see somebody, we use our eyes, right? And then our brain kicks in and we make all sorts of judgments and stories about that person. So the first question is, is it true? Is what I'm thinking true? And we like to be right. So chances are, we're going to say, yeah, it's true. And here's all the reasons why. That's the next question. How do I know it's true? So we may have a laundry list as long as my arm, right? This may not be the first time I've come home and the kitchen's not clean, blah, 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 blah. You might remind me of somebody, you know, I've had an experience, blah, blah, blah. So is it true? How do I know? Sometimes we don't know how it's true. And then that might be unconscious bias, those messages that we hear, right? That, sorry, not messages that we hear, messages that we soak up from the world around us. 
through the media, through what we're watching on, you know, whichever streaming channel we're using, books we're reading, things we're not reading, things we don't hear about, right? Those are all messages that we soak up about other people and ourselves. So if, if you can't make a connection of like, how do I know it's true? Maybe you're soaking it up unconsciously and it's just becoming part of what your, what your brain is using to make decisions, which the brain is good at because it's all about efficiency. The last question, and it's my favorite one. And, and if you can't remember the first two, the last one will serve you just as well. What if it's not true, right? Because now I have a story in my head about why the dishes aren't done and who you are in the world and if you care about me or not, blah, blah, blah. Or I'm looking at you and I'm making judgments about who you are, what you know, what you don't know, if I can trust you. What if what I'm thinking isn't true? And you don't even have to know the, the answer, the other side. You don't even have to know all the options that you could be missing. Just asking the question makes a little crack and allows the light to shine in and remind you that you could be wrong and that there's something else you don't know. And then we get to ask some questions, which is the most beautiful part. You know, how was your day, for example, right? It's not like, why didn't you? Like, how was your day? (laughs) How was your day today? And then you might find out that there was an emergency and, and you know, the person had to leave and they love you very much, but the dishes weren't a priority because somebody needed, you know, their help. Total transformation in what I, in the story, total transformation in how I'm seeing the situation and the person just like that. But we have to be conscious in order to do it because otherwise we're on autopilot. So this is the problem I see in most of our online lives. And then obviously in these, these daily moments of friction is that we're on autopilot and we are not pausing because just that pause make, can make us shift up to the more conscientious part of our brain from the amygdala that's just looking for danger and disorder. Absolutely. Those dishes that aren't done are a sign of disorder. And maybe you had a day that was so full of chaos that you just can't come home to a kitchen of chaos. I mean, <laughs> it's not that big in the scope of things, but if it's the 10th thing that happened to you today and all you wanted was to arrive home and find order, not disorder. It is the biggest, most important thing. So I have to share with folks a little practical tip that, that I've learned here on the family farm. I've been here for six weeks taking care of my mother who has dementia and my brother lives there and my sister lives there and they're, they're always at each other a little bit. And my brother is sometimes very obnoxious. And since the last time I talked to you, I remembered this and I've been applying it over and over because he will text the darndest things to me from time to time. And I just want to let my thumbs just fly and let him have it. But I have been saying, but but that's because I have notions. I tell myself a story about what he's what he's saying, what his background implications are, what his intent is. So I've been using what you've said, and I pause and I use a 24-hour rule. I don't hit send. Sometimes I'm so mad I still I still type it out, but I do not hit send. Gets it off my chest. And you know what? A hundred percent of the time, Emory. I have not regretted holding that that send because he'll do something incredibly cool the very next morning for me. Bring over fresh rolls that his wife made or whatever. And this is it. If we assume the best intentions of others first, you're coming home to dirty dishes is such a good thing. You know, what if? And don't you feel like such a heel (laughs) when you follow your emotions over a cliff and it turned out they were at home struggling with all hell breaking loose? So I love this in the terms, in terms of, so let's talk about this in the bigger racism terms. Mm. Give me, couch the same exact, the same exact mentality in something that we're doing 
that could be improved in our work environments or whatever, wherever we find we we are up against this race issue. Okay. Well, we've been talking a lot in the last year and a bit about representation or lack thereof, right? Of people of color, of people who are black, especially in positions of leadership, positions of power. And so, and why is that? Well, because we have an autopilot response when we see somebody of color based on what we've been taught about blackness, what we've been taught about whiteness, what we've been taught about people of color, right? There's a hierarchy of value that we've been taught in our society and globally. And so some of that could be very consciously learned, right? Family surroundings. Some of it, much of it is unconsciously learned. As as I said before, we're soaking it up through the messages, right? So who are we seeing in positions of power now? That's a message about leadership equals, right? Who are we seeing in positions of power on in TV shows? Another message, you know, what you look like, and leadership. So that starts, you know, as part of the cycle of who do we expect to see in those positions, right? When we add the systemic layer of racism and how there are barriers to access and opportunity based on racism and what we've what we've been taught about race, then we're bumping up all sorts of against all sorts of barriers that keep us from accessing opportunity, from being afforded opportunity, et cetera. So it's a big wheel with lots of spokes. Yeah. When in your organization, you may have a, a new opening or you're, you're, you're promote, you have an opportunity to promote somebody that unconsciousness, right? That the, the racism that we're soaking in is going to inform who do you think is going to be a good candidate for this job? So all the stories are going to start. And I'm not suggesting we know the stories, but there's something that's like, not that person. Yeah. So again, we have to peel away. Like, is it true what I'm thinking? Like, are they not a good candidate for this job? How do I know they're not? Well, if they already work for you and you're looking to promote somebody, maybe you're not reading through their, their file. Maybe you haven't had a conversation with them. Maybe you're just making an assumption based on this automatic response, based on what we're soaking up in the world around us, around who has value and who doesn't, or who has more and who has less and using that to make a decision. What if you're not right? What if it's not true what you're thinking? What could you be missing in this person? The experience they have, the perspectives they could share, the opportunities they could open for your company, for your team, because of their perspective, their experiences, the communities that they belong to. The opportunities are endless. And so that's one example of how you can use those same three questions to peel away at, you know, are you seeing the person in front of you? Or is the video camera that's lodged in our mind based on all the things we've heard, seen, been told that's shining, right? Are we seeing the picture that we think that we see or that we've been taught to see, or are we really seeing the person? Mm-hmm. You know? And so again, both and if, if we can come out of the us and them space, we can get into a space where we can ask some questions, where we can get to know each other, where we can see and appreciate and, and pay attention more to who people are and what they bring. Mm-hmm. rather than who we think they're not. And that leads to how I I assume you're all about general inclusiveness and all that, because I notice exactly the scenario that you're talking about in ageism. Yep, absolutely. You know, there's a wonderful, you remind me of an, a podcast interview I did with Chip Conley. Mm. So Chip Conley is the wise elder that the founders of Airbnb hired to be their mentor. Now, mind you, they were 27 and he was 43. So in that organization, I think the average age was 29. And so he at 43 was a wise elder. But Chip has an amazing organization now called the MEA Academy. MEA, I think it's, I'll have to 
I'll put it in the show notes, what that stands for. But anyway, he's always talking about, about ageism yep. and that, that, that scenario that you just um, spoke about, you know, if people don't live in places where they encounter uh, people of different skin color, and that is so true in America. I'm, I hate to say that, but there are, there are places where this conversation might fall flat because people don't even experience. I grew up in a very, I never knew anybody that didn't look just like me mm-hmm. the way I grew up in, in this little tiny farming town in Illinois. And I think if we can think about, about this, even in the scope of how we all run our daily lives related to all kinds of isms. Absolutely. Yeah. Gender, you know? age, sexual orientation, language, language ability, how our brains work, you know, neurodiversity. I'm so, I'm so in love with this term neurodiversity now. Yeah. Because every brain is truly beautiful. And if we can figure out a way how to tap some of the gifts that people on, on the spectrum have, oh my gosh, that that's amazing. You know, I experience that every day with my child. She's nine and, and she learns differently than I do. And I'm, I want to like pull my hair out because I'm like, why are you watching that while you're doing this? But mom, it helps me focus. And I'm like, what, how could that possibly, you know, like I want to lose my marble because I could never work with something on in the background. I can't do it. And so if I'm not careful, I'm going to say, don't do that. You need to turn it off. And I have, I'm not saying I haven't done this, but I have, you know, turn it off. You need to focus. And I'm preventing her from succeeding and using a tool to help her do better because it doesn't work for me. We do that all the time. Oh yes. And I think it goes the other way with young people. I am, I'm interviewing lots of very, very, very young thought leaders in the world. I just got off a phone call with a guy who started a nonprofit when he was 11 years old. Wow. It's a, yeah. It's a water, it's, it, his nonprofit provides water in communities all over the world and in really depleted places. Anyway, what if we're doing the same thing to young people? You know how people complain about Gen Z? You know, what if they really want to be net contributors and we're just not asking them? Not hearing what they have to say because it's not coming out a certain way. Yes. Oh, 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 that's that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing. Okay. So I love the direction of this. We definitely, I'm thinking that you and I can create a masterclass on this that helps people really find some expansion in their orbits, whether it's their workplace or the place that they, they volunteer for, or their, even their family. I, I think there's some, there's some of this that happens in families. It happens everywhere. Yeah. So let's dive right back into these notions about race that really are, that really are puzzling. Okay really giant hurdles that we have to get over. I loved your thoughts. So I'm just going to fire a few of them at you. I loved your thoughts on why do we call Barack Obama the first black president when he's equally white in his genes? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So there's a couple of things. One, you know, how are people perceived? How do we see people? And two, how do we identify ourselves? So sometimes those two things don't match. Yeah. I am a person of color. I don't use the title black based on my, you know, 51 years on the planet and and never feeling black enough. I don't, I don't use that. I just, I don't feel like I, I can, I should, whatever. But our histories have rules in them about who people are depending on how they look. And so, and one of those rules in, in the United States of America was the one drop rule. And I just discovered a new book um, called one drop. So if your listeners are interested in learning more, Dr. Yaba Blay has just written a book called One Drop Rule, Shifting the Lens on Race. So in the United States of America, if you had any Black ancestry, any, 
you weren't allowed to call yourself white back in the day. Okay. That has carried forward in a number of, in a number of ways, because if you're not, if you're not white, then you must be black. Now I'm light skinned. I have tons of privilege because I'm lighter than my father, for example, or other black people. But in a context of, in a, in a history that we have, and history has legacy, right? So that carries forward. We teach our kids and then we don't necessarily talk about it anymore. Like a lot of people don't know about the one drop rule, but it's part of our DNA now. And that's how we see people. So if we come from a, from an environment where if you just had one drop and there were names for the different shades of Brown, it's, it's fascinating. If you come from that environment, then of course it doesn't matter that you're one parent is white and one parent is black. You're black because you haven't been, historically, you haven't been allowed to be white. Yeah. Now an individual will then choose, can choose how they identify. Yeah. So I can identify, my daughter identifies as black or the exact same shade of brown. She identifies as black. Awesome. Yeah. So it's fascinating. You also mentioned the other day, something I thought was interesting uh, uh, is that the difference you're Canadian. One of the things that's a nuance here that has big implications is that this kind of one drop rule has been written into us law, whereas Canadians didn't actually have it written in, in, into law. Tell us a little bit about that history. I love that. Yeah. So we, I mean, I'm not a history buff by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that from doing courses in the, in the United States and, and working here that there, we have much of the same problems, much of the same st- type of history, not necessarily to the same magnitude. It doesn't look exactly the same, but racism, systemic racism, slavery, like all of that. Yeah. But what I noticed in the, in the United States of America is that things have been written down. And when I did, you know, I, I, I came to New York a few years ago to do an amazing workshop on dismantling racism. And I was like, wow, all these laws, let me Google. So I you know, came home and I Googled and I couldn't now, maybe I didn't search far enough, but that's also interesting, right? I couldn't find near as much in writing as, as, as you have, um, south of the border. Cause I'm in Canada. The beautiful thing about things in writing is we can talk about it in a different way. Cause you can say, look, it's here. It's here in black, literally in black and white. Right. That I, I believe that that lends itself to a different kind of conversation, different conversation, a different type of conversation, because we, it's a fact we can talk about it when we don't have things in writing, when we can't point to it, then it becomes easy to say things like, Oh, I don't think that really happened. Oh, you must be, and I'm not just talking about history now, right? In in everyday, everyday life, if we're having different experiences, the same situation, I might be experiencing something completely different. And sometimes we hear, oh, no, no, that's not what that is. You, You must be imagining things or you're too sensitive. That's not what that is. How dare you? You know, how dare you tell me that what I'm experiencing is a true. So, so yeah, there are, there are things in, in writing. If you're, if folks are interested, you can just, you know, take a gander and, and see the trajectory of race as a social construct weaving into how, who has value and who doesn't, and therefore how we treat people and what people have access to based on the color of their skin. Mm. I love this notion because of that, you just turned that kind of horrible thing on its head. That and, and and so I'm going to pause there just to remind people that we have these choices in our business lives and our families too. You know, we could be spending the next 15 minutes talking about how dreadful it is that the U.S. wrote these things in, into law, but you've seen the possibility there. The possibility in that dreadful thing is that, hey, we can have a public dialogue about whether we want to be connected to that anymore. We can change it. And, and- 
it's much harder to change a whole bunch of things that are amorphous out in the world. But if you can, if you can change it on, on statute level, it slowly can permeate through society. The other benefit is that you can trace it and see how it evolved. You can see where it started and then what happened after that. And then, and then be like, huh, how come we call Barack Obama the first black president when he has, you know, a white parent and a black parent? Oh, let's go back. You know, you can connect the dots, which is fascinating. Yes. I love this. Okay. Here's another little quick one that I, I love you to comment on. Cause I, I mentioned it to you the other day. So one of the fabulous guests that we've written twice about and interviewed on the podcast and was one of the kindest people to me when I just started ever widening circles, his name is Daniel Kish. Daniel Kish is most well-known in the world. In fact, his, his, his work has been seen by about 2 billion people. He's most known for being the real Batman. His eyes were removed before he was was six months old, both of them, because he had a certain kind of genetic cancer in his eyes. So he literally has no idea what the color blue is or black or white or anything. It just isn't a, it isn't a mental construct in his mind's eye. So I've asked him about this when the George Floyd thing was going on in America so intensely. I was like, Daniel, tell me about how you think about racism. And that's when I knew that you're absolutely right. It's a construct. Race is a construct because if it doesn't exist for Daniel Kish, who has no idea what a blue sky means, mm-hmm. then it isn't a thing. I mean, it, that's how you, you can tell truth. It's true for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about what, uh, what that, do you, do you see that in some way that's a uh, array of possibility or a little window? Yeah. It reminds me to look for the oneness. Like what is it about us as human beings that connects us? What is it about us as human beings that we need to remember to build community, you know? And, and yeah, we're going to have different experiences because of what we've done with concepts like race, we will have different experiences. But when we, when we come down to the human being, what do we need? We all want and need the same thing to be acknowledged, to be loved, to be safe, right? to have shelter. And we get distracted by all the different ways we look or don't look. And, and then we make it mean something and it takes us out of the possibility of connection. Imagine what we could do if we remembered that we are all connected. Imagine what the world would look like. Imagine how less lonely people would be, for example. And, you know, and that is how I noticed Daniel's way in the world is he is, he's so quick to connect with people because he's connecting without the, the biases of, of vision. Yeah. He's just, he can just feel somebody's good, positive intention or the, the kindness in their voice or whatever. He's using a view that is not as biased as what we're stuck with. Yeah. So I have to have you finish. We're getting close to the end of this interview. And I I loved a quote that you shared with me last time we talked. It's about if you go too fast. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. If you go too fast, you miss stuff. And if you go too slow, nothing changes. We need to work at the pace of guidance. Wow. So on the Goodness Exchange, we're very, very big about trusted advisors. And we call them for ourselves trusted guides. Because I think we all want to be the hero in our own story. So we're, we don't like making out all these thought leaders to be heroes. 
we like to consider them wise guides in our own journey to be heroes in our own lives. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about this. We need to work at the pace of guidance. Talk to me about that in a real way that we can put in place tomorrow or tonight when our kid comes home late for for curfew. (laughs) Yeah, when your kid comes home late for curfew. So here's how I'm applying it in my daily life, okay? I could, I could wake up in the morning or go to bed the night before and have a plan for everything I want to do the next day. Right. And, and wake up, bounce out of bed, full steam ahead. This is the plan. This is what I'm going to do. And if I'm going too fast, I'm going to miss the little nuggets, the insights, right? You talked about having those sticky note. I'm going to miss those insights. Some of which will take me in a completely different direction, possibly, but a direction that I'll learn something new or I'll hear something that I wouldn't have heard before that I can then incorporate into my work. Yeah. Or in my conversation with my daughter or whatever. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm going too slow, then nothing happens. Right. Then I'm like, right. (laughs) La la la. Nothing, nothing's changing because it's just too slow. So the pace that what I'm trying to do in my life is make room, make space for the guidance to find, to find me, for me or more aptly for me to hear it, for me to hear the guidance and be, and be willing to take the pause, listen, consider, and then maybe course correct, maybe move in a different direction. Maybe I don't say the thing that I was going to say when, to use your example, when, when my kid comes home after curfew, not my kid, cause she's nine, but maybe, right. Maybe I'm not going to say that thing. Maybe the pause is, I'm so glad you're okay. And then maybe I might hear about what happened and why. Right. But so it reminds me that we have, I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine yesterday about um, stoicism, which is right. The only thing you can change is yourself. Right. So kudos to, to Derek for that reminder. And what happens in that space that I have control over? What can I do to change how I'm thinking about a situation? And you know what that reminds me of? A new, new to me, new philosophy of it's not happening to me. It's happening for me. What is, what's in this for me? And again, if I'm moving at the pace of guidance, I, I'll gonna, I'm going to take some time to think about what's in this for me rather than like, ah, I can't believe it. You know, there's construction outside. I can't think. Well, now I get to hang out at my neighbor's house today for a little bit, right? And connect with her and, and have a completely different experience than I wouldn't have had if I was sitting in my place, you know, dealing with the construction noise or canceling, right? Because there were the construction, like, so. I love this. This is where the sweet spot is. This, we, we have a really wonderful thought leader that we follow as a team on ever widening circles. He's been very instrumental in how we construct the goodness exchange. His name is Dr. Suikamar Rao. And he mm. talks about good thing, bad thing, mm. and how quick we are back to your autopilot comments. So much of this is being on autopilot yeah. and right. And how we label things yeah. good or bad, just like that in, in, in a millisecond. And he encourages us all to just say, this happened. This happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing as instead of either or both and like it to the, it it doesn't have to be bad or good. It can be a little bit of both. And anyways, what is it? Yeah. And then we can sink into it in 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 a different way and appreciate the complexity and the nuance and the gift and the, and the yuckiness all at the same time. Cause that's what human beings are too, right? We're complex. Oh, I, you've given me goosebumps here. This is exactly, I mean, I could just tear up a little bit. This is exactly how I hoped my conversations on this podcast would go when I start. I mean, we are taking apart a, su- a subject called racism, which is hurting so many. 
and limiting so much potential for all of us. And we have managed to end this podcast on such a high note. And that is because of you. That's because this is how you are in the world. And I knew it within a few minutes of about uh, within talking to you. I thank you so much for sharing what you are uniquely built to contribute with us. Thank you, Linda. It's been my pleasure. Okay. So we like to end with two things. What do we do, do next? And share with us exactly where people can connect with your work and keep this momentum going. All right. Well, what we can do next are a couple of simple things, right? Practice awareness, practice the pause that you, that you so aptly named, lean in and listen to people, learn more about their stories, be curious about their stories, learn about history. You know, we just had the national day for truth and reconciliation here in Canada last week, the first one to recognize and honor indigenous histories in this, in the survivors of residential schools. Yeah. So there's things we need to learn that we may not know about. Context is important. There's also things we need to unlearn that we have learned. Yeah. And widen our perspective. And then with all of that to, to come to interactions with an openness and a humbleness, that there's always going to be things we don't know, can't know, won't know because of who we are but to create the space to really listen, do our work, but listen to others, hear their stories, and then find a way to to move forward together in a different way where we actually acknowledge and honor the people that we're with, the people that we're working with, living with, taking care of, being cared for by. Those are things that we can do. Yeah. Honoring the the uniqueness of others is is something we could do a lot more of, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So where can people continue the journey with you? Where should they find you? They can find me on my website, annemarieshrouder.com. Yes. And, all, and all kinds of links will be in the show notes as well. All the things, all the books, and Emery and I shared with you, the, the, my podcast, The Power of the Pause is, is going to be there. You know, Emery, this has been a real unique hour for me. I, I think that you've got something to share with the world. And I hope that this is just the beginning of, of our journey together, because I really want to be a multiplier for your way of thinking. Thanks, Linda. I look forward to talking to you again and keeping in touch. Okay. So remember to check out the the Goodness Exchange and the new social media network that we're creating there where goodness is the culture or goodness and progress and being kind to others is the culture. And that's called the Conspiracy of Goodness Network. And the one thing you can do to keep the momentum going for this podcast and all the other great uh, guests, good work that I'm elevating is to review this podcast. I'm an outsider to the internet, even though I've been diving in deep for 10 years. The way I understand it is the more reviews that this podcast gets, the more ears, eyes, and hearts it will open. So thank you. I hope all the connections to goodness and progress that we shared here will carry you through your week with a spring in your step, and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Have a great week.